Well, good morning. Glad to have you guys with us. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 11. Last week, actually, we were in Acts chapter 12. Uh, Josh took us through Acts chapter 12, where we learned about the Apostle James, who was the first of the 12 apostles to die for his faith in Jesus. I mean, Judas already died, but that wasn't for his faith in Jesus. But James was the first one to be killed for his testimony for Jesus. He'd been put to death, run through with the sword by King Herod. And King Herod wanted to do the same thing with Peter, so he arrests him and puts him in jail. But last week we learned how the angel miraculously delivered him. And we learned from that story last week how in both circumstances, whether good or bad, whether death or deliverance, the end of chapter 12, verse 24, it says that the word of God increased and multiplied. You can't stop what God is doing. You blow the dandelion, as it were, and what do you get? More dandelions. That's what's going on here. Now, we skipped the second half of chapter 11 because what you have in Acts 11 and 12 is a major transition point in the book. The focus of the book shifts from kind of the area of Judea to the nations as a whole. And personally, it shifts from Peter being that main spokesperson to Paul being the main spokesperson. But since we're covering Acts pretty quickly, we felt like it'd be best to basically cover that last main story with Peter in chapter 12, and then come back and pick up the rest of 11 as part of looking at this first phase of Paul's ministry in chapters 13 and 14. That's what hopefully we're going to do this morning. We're going to be covering half of chapter 11 and chapters 13 and 14. It's a lot, I know. My goal this morning is uh, more than teaching verse by verse. I, I, hope you, I hope you see me as more of a tour guide. Or as it were, we're in the tour bus going along, and I'm just saying, if you look out the right-hand window, you'll see this. As you look out the left, you'll see this. What I want to do is give us a survey of what's going on in this first phase of Paul's ministry. And this is important because, I mean, the reality is we, we could spend a week on every part of the, these chapters because the stories are incredible. But I have two purposes this morning. Number one is this, that by stepping back and looking at the big picture, number one, it will whet your appetite to look into this section more in depth on your own, to read through it and love it and see all the detail and conversation and amazing things that happen. And secondly, I think that kind of uniquely by stepping back and looking at it as one big unit, we can make some connections between their time and our time between the story going on in the Acts and the story that we ourselves have been written into. We are part of that same mission. We are called into the same story. Now, if you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, you'll see inside that bulletin, I took a, I took a page out of Terry's playbook and gave you a handout. And so what you'll see in there is basically I gave you just the main uh, the outline of the message. If you didn't grab a bulletin, we have some extras that the ushers can get you if you'd like one. This will just help you see what on our whirlwind tour, what we're going to be looking at. But first, what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at uh, four characteristics of a missional church and four characteristics of missional messengers, a church and the messengers who make up that church. Now, before we get going with that, we have to talk for just a second about that word missional. It's become quite the buzzword in the church in America, especially over the last 10 or 15 years. And every time a term like mission or missional uh, becomes that level of like a buzzword, it, it, it takes on a life of its own. It can be applied to everything and nothing at the same time. So let me just take about a minute to clarify for you why I think this is a good word for us to use and, and what I mean when I use this word missional. 
Basically, the missional conversation going on in the church in America right now is centered around two basic questions. Number one, what is God seeking to do in this world? And then second, how does the church fit into that? What's God seeking to do? And then how is the church a part of what what God's seeking to do? It's not so much about what's our mission as the church as much as what's God's mission and how are we a part of that? I think for too long, Christians, we have been far too focused on what we want to get out of the local church. And we haven't focused enough on what God wants to get out of the local church. And the whole missional conversation is a way of addressing that problem, of going back to Scripture itself to say, God, what do you describe the church? What is, how do you define why the church exists? Now, there's a lot of passages we can go to, but let me just give you one representative one that I think really helps clarify what it means that we've been called into God's mission. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go ahead and put that up here. In verse 17, you're probably familiar with this verse. There's a pizza place in, here in town that has this verse up on their wall. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Go to the next one. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see what Paul's talking about here? He starts out by saying that God has made us new and he has reconciled us. He's brought us back into right relationship with him. But that's not the end of the story. We've been made new and reconciled as a part of God's overall plan to make all things new, to reconcile the world to himself. And he has begun with us first because his point is to call us into that mission with him. Let's see what it says that we are ambassadors God makes his appeal through us. This means that witnessing, sharing the good news about Jesus is not just one of many programs or activities of the church, but is the very reason for which the church exists. We are a missionary people. Now, on that handout, I gave you a couple of quotes that are really helpful for me in understanding. Let me draw your attention to the second one. I'm going to put it up on the slide if you don't have the handouts. Michael Goheen's a theologian. He's kind of based out of uh, Vancouver and Phoenix, Arizona at the same time. Um, And he writes this. He says, The people of God are like a movie preview or trailer. A movie trailer gives actual footage of the movie that's coming in the future so that people will want to see it. The people of God are a kingdom preview. We embody the salvation of the kingdom which is coming in the future so that people will see it and want it. That is what witness is all about. I find that such a helpful word picture. We are a preview. We are a movie trailer. There's actual redemption and reconciliation going on amongst us. That's not just for us. It's so that the world might see what God can do and be drawn to it. As a church, we exist for God and for the sake of the world. That's what I mean by missional. So that being said, let's turn our attentions to Acts chapter 11, And let's look briefly at just some characteristics of a church that is oriented around this mission. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Here's what Luke writes. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus in Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, from the island in the Mediterranean from northern Africa. They were Jews by nature, but who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The Hellenists meaning Greeks. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. What we have, go ahead and put up that first map here. Let me just show you where we're talking about on the map. You see down on the bottom, there's Jerusalem. That's where most of this story has been based out of at this point. And even as the gospel spread northward into like modern-day Syria, where Antioch is, those who went basically preached to Jews, or at least God-fearing Gentiles who had some sort of familiarity with the Old Covenant. But what you have going on in Antioch is the first time that non-Jewish-influenced Gentiles are purposely reached for the gospel. Antioch was a very cosmopolitan city. It was, uh, some would say, the, the third most important city in the Roman Empire, after Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. They had a diverse population from all over the empire and even from outside the empire. There was, a or there was a population of people from India, a population of people from China even, and there was a large Jewish population. It was a diverse city, and when the gospel came to Antioch, it created a very diverse church. It seems that the church in Antioch was not primarily Jewish, and it also wasn't primarily Gentile. It was this mixture of both, which is awesome, but was rather unique up to that point. You have a diverse group of people from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. But yet here in Antioch, those old divisions are gone. And they share this new identity in Jesus Christ and in fellowship with one another that what we have in this diverse metropolitan area, you have the same fellowship that we saw in the beginning of the book in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is producing this same kind of unity and fellowship. And those outside the church, they, they take notice that there's something different about this group. They understand their identity as this new covenant people of God. They looked at this church and they went, okay, this isn't just another Jewish group. We've got a big Jewish group in the city already. But it's also different from all the different pagan religions and cults. So they feel like they have to come up with a new name for this group. And in verse 26, see what it says? This is the first place that, Christians are, or that, that believers are called Christians. That's the new name that they don't choose for themselves, but that the outsiders looking at them, they go, okay, we're going to call these people the Christ people, the Christians, because they're always talking about this guy Christ, this guy, Jesus Christ. Even unbelievers were able to pick up on the idea that this new group's identity is all about Jesus. So that's the first characteristic of a missional church is that they understand their new covenant identity in Jesus Christ. The old divisions are gone, and they share this new identity in Jesus. The second one, let me point it out to you, is this. A missional church is a place where former outcasts and enemies are welcomed home where former outcasts and enemies are welcomed home. We see this in verse 25 of chapter 11. It says that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
Barnabas comes from Jerusalem. He sees what's going on in this mixed church in Antioch, and he goes, oh my gosh, I got to be here. And not just I got to be here, Saul needs to be here. So he takes the 100-mile trip by foot over— no, actually, stay on that last map. Go backwards, if you don't mind. He takes the 100-mile trip just up around, and he comes to Tarsus. He looks around. He finds Saul, and he brings him back to Antioch. It's probably been at least 10 years since Saul's conversion. And during this time, I guess in some ways, Saul was kind of like the, 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 the square peg in the round hole. He didn't quite fit. There was so much baggage tied to his identity as a Pharisee and as a violent persecutor of the church. But when Barnabas sees what's going on in Antioch, he goes, this is a place where Saul will not just be welcomed, but he will thrive. And not just thrive, but he will be able to lead and teach. What kind of a church must this have been that a former violent opponent of Christianity, one who dragged men and women who believed in Jesus off to prison and signed off on their executions, what kind of church would let a guy like that come and lead? A church that understands God's power to change hearts. A church that understands that God can use even the most unlikely people in his mission. This was a church that practiced hospitality. And by hospitality, I don't just mean they put out nice little doilies and had nice tea parties. But the word hospitality that we see in our Bibles, it literally means a lover of strangers, a welcomer of strangers. That they welcome in people they don't know and by strangers. I think it also means those that we find strange. This is who this new covenant people of God are. We are welcomers of strangers. We welcome those we don't know. We welcome those that we find strange. We welcome people with baggage. How are we doing at this? Are we that kind of a church? In some ways, I would say yes. Over the last several years, I've led that Cornerstone 101 class that we've done. And I've been amazed at how often the people who end up here at Cornerstone They've had bad experiences at other churches. They've been in other false religious systems, but yet they end up here and they find in this body a place where they can belong, a safe place where they can thrive. And I praise God for that. I know that was the way Cornerstone was for me when I first came here. A breath of fresh air. A group of people who love the Lord and are passionate to follow him. And I've loved being a part of this church. I thank God for that, but I don't think we've arrived. I think we can still grow in this way. And not just in the way that we focus on, or we function on Sunday mornings, but in every way that we gather together, are we a church that welcomes outcasts and enemies home? Your community group. Is it a place where you can welcome in new people? A place for, for people with baggage? Those of you that serve in children's ministry, when those kids walk through the door, do you seek to love and care for them like this, or are you already counting down until the service is over? When missionaries that have been sent out by this church return home worn out and weary, how do we welcome them home? Is this a safe place for them? Many years later, when Paul was penning the book of Romans, he said in Romans chapter 15, verse 7, that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Could it be that Paul wrote those words because many years earlier he had received that same kind of welcome from the church in Antioch? A missional church welcomes people home. Number three, 
A missional church has multiple leaders. We see this one in, in chapter 13, verse 1. Look what it says. It says that now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, who we've already met. Simeon, who was called Niger, which means black, which means he was probably a black man from, from Africa who found a role of leadership within this church. Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, like modern-day Libya. Menean, who is a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, which means he was part of the aristocracy in Judea. And Saul. This is a diverse group of leaders from different places who all found a home and a place to care for people within this diverse church in Antioch. A missional church has multiple leaders because it's healthy for the church. And it's healthy for the leaders. I have so loved being at a church for the last 10, 11 years where I'm part of a team of leaders. Where it's not all resting on one person and their personality. It helps protect us against that idea of a cult of personality. And even we see in this passage that it also allows the church to continue in health even when the Holy Spirit calls leaders on to other places. We're going to see that in this passage today. But we've seen that over the life of our church, haven't we? Think about the different people who have been sent out from this body to start new works in other places. Think about even in the last year. We sent out Mark Snee, our high school pastor. We sent out Chris Cheek. I just got a picture yesterday. They they arrived in Nebraska. They made it home to where they're going to be. We're sending out Jose Luis, our, our Spanish ministry pastor. And that's just within this past year. Yet we're able to continue, not because we're so great, but because the Holy Spirit continues to supply the leaders that we need, even as he calls leaders on other places. Fourth, a missional church is mobilized to witness locally and globally. We've already seen the way that this church in Antioch is representing Jesus right there in Antioch. Because the church continues to grow. And they've created such a buzz that the, the, the outsiders have to make up a name for them. But we also see that they had a heart for the larger body of Christ. At the end of chapter 11, we read about how they found out that there was a need for money and for food with the church back home in Jerusalem. So this diverse group of people from all over the place, this daughter church planted from the church in Jerusalem, they put together an offering to take care of the mother church, as it were. But most specifically, we see their mobilization for the global witness of the gospel in the way that they send out Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. It says, Okay, while those leaders, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there on to Cyprus. I love the way that this is written because you see there's, there's a partnership going on. That as Paul and Barnabas are set out as these missional messengers, they don't go on their own. They don't just show up one day, here's our, here's our two weeks notice, we're gone. The Holy Spirit and the church partnered together to send them out. I would say that's the first characteristic that we see of missional messengers is that they're driven by the Holy Spirit, not their own personal ambition. When we read about how Barnabas and Saul were sent out, they weren't driven by just a wanderlust, I want to see the world kind of adventure spirit. It doesn't seem they desired a platform or because they were disgruntled with the way things were going in Antioch and wanted to be able to spread their wings and do their own thing. 
What we see with Paul and Barnabas is a group of guys who are faithfully serving the church. They'd already been there for about a year, but were they planning to be there long term? Was this just a stepping stone? We don't really know, but we know that they, they didn't have one foot out the door the whole time. They were faithful while they were there in, in Antioch. And the remarkable thing, when you read about it, I'm not even sure that Barnabas and Saul had advanced warning of what was coming. You see that in verse 2? The leaders together, and maybe the whole church, were together and fasting and praying and worshiping the Lord, and the Holy Spirit speaks to all of them, saying, take these two guys and send them on. Can you imagine what that would be like to be Barnabas and Saul going, okay, we're here, we're faithful, we're teaching. Lord, what's, what do you want to do with this church in the next five years, ten years? And, oh, <laughs> we're going. Okay. The Holy Spirit and the local church confirmed and sent them on their way. Again, I see this as such a reflection of the sending heart that I see that God's built into us here at Cornerstone. We want to participate with the Holy Spirit in sending people out, in preparing and sending people out. If you're here this morning and you kind of feel that stirring like the Holy Spirit might be leading you to move on to some other place or be an overseas missionary or something like that, we want to walk with you. We want to involve you in the ministry of the gospel here in Simi Valley if you're not already. And we want to walk alongside you in preparing to send you out. Our global team has developed a two to three year process of preparing and sending missionaries. And some of you in this room are are in the midst of that process right now. Some of you might be thinking, two to three years? Why that long? Sometimes when we read the book of Acts, the fact that everything is so truncated and just boom, 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 it can make us think, that's the way it's supposed to be. Just go, go, go. Don't wait around. Get moving. That's, don't. that's the way it's supposed to be. But remember this. Before the Holy Spirit told Barnabas and Saul to go, 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 there was at least 10 years of preparation and ministry. If your desire is for lifelong faithfulness rather than just scratching an itch that you have right now for adventure, don't shortchange preparation. And don't separate preparation from ministry. Don't put them in two separate compartments because they're often the same thing. I would say that pursuing present faithfulness in what God's called you to do is the best way to prepare for what he might do with you in the future. Because the truth is you don't know what the future holds. Jesus could call you home next week or next year, and what you're doing right now will have been your life's work. What are you doing with it? Are you wasting what God's given you today because of what you hope he gives you tomorrow? Be faithful where God's entrusted and planted you today. Bloom where where you're planted, if you will. Dig your roots down deep. And I guarantee you, if you do that, you won't miss the boat. You won't miss the call to go somewhere else. As a matter of fact, pursuing present faithfulness where God's planted you now is one of the best ways to ensure that when you do move on, it's actually the Holy Spirit moving you on rather than your own just kind of whimsy or wanderlust or some sort of grass is greener on the other side of the fence discontentment. Pursue faithfulness here. The global team is actually going to be out in the missions corner, of where if you've ever seen it, where the big world map is out in the lobby. They would love to talk with you today 
If you're someone who, man, you might want to start that process of being prepared to, send, to be sent out. Or even if you're someone who wants to help us prepare and send people. They'd love to talk with you. You can find more information on the global page of the website as well. But here's the point. It's not just those who are sent to other places that are missional messengers. Because missions isn't just one activity of the church. It is the very reason for which we all exist. We're all missionaries. We're all messengers. Even if you spent your entire life in Simi Valley and you've never been anywhere else, you were still sent here by God to represent Jesus here. That's what makes this next point that I'm going to talk about so important. Number two, missional messengers are learners of people. This is huge, guys. Missional messengers understand the importance of knowing their audience and then speaking truth into their lives. As Saul and Barnabas go out, you can go to the next slide. As they begin to head out and they're sent and they go across Cyprus and they head their way into Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. You can go to the next slide when you, when you have a second. As they move that way into modern-day Turkey, you see different ways in which their, their messages are recorded. Sometimes Paul, or Luke gives us the whole message. Sometimes he just says they, they testified. But one thing that we see, especially as we move through the rest of the book of Acts, they didn't have one canned, one-size-fits-all message. Now, certainly, the gospel message they always brought was essentially the same. It focused on the kingdom of God being revealed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the way that they brought that same essential message, it was tailored to the audience. It, was, it varied according to the audience that they were addressing. One of the characteristics of this first trip that Paul and Barnabas take is that every time they come into a new town, they typically start by looking for the Jewish synagogue and going in there and communicating the gospel to the Jewish people in those towns. They understood that Jesus as the Jewish Messiah was the fulfillment of God's promises to the people of Israel. And so when they come to this one town, another town called Antioch, but this is in Pisidia, they begin to speak to these Jewish people, and the message that Paul delivers is, is very similar in a lot of ways to the one that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost back in Acts 2. It is full of Old Testament history. It's full of the prophetic promises that God made that were fulfilled by Jesus, and it's even full of prophetic warnings about what will happen if the people don't believe. But later on, as they move on, you can go to the next slide. As they move and make their way, they come to a town called Lystra. And in Lystra, in chapter 14, this seems to be a time where Paul's just speaking out in, in a public setting with a mixed group that's around him. And as he's teaching, in verse 9, we read about a crippled man who's there listening to, to Paul. And Paul hears him, or sees him, and he goes, this guy's got faith to be made well. So he tells the man to stand up, and he does, and the crowd goes wild. Look what happens. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> when the crowd saw what Paul had done, this is chapter 14. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and said in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, their chief god, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, Paul and Barnabas didn't speak the language, so they don't know what's going on. Have you ever been that? Have you ever been in another country and everybody's, or maybe you go get your nails done or something like that and everybody's talking and <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. So Paul and Barnabas go, wow, okay, everybody's pretty excited. I wonder what's going on. 
And all of a sudden, the priest of Zeus comes out, and he's got oxen. He's about to sacrifice to them. And these are Jewish men. They know their Ten Commandments. They know that God doesn't want them to be worshiping false idols, let alone being the false idols. So in a very Jewish context, they tear their garments as a sign of this is wrong, this is, this is blasphemy. And they rush out into the crowd, and here's what they say. It says, verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain, these empty things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witnesses. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. It's a very different message than what we see when, he, when they're in Pisidian Antioch. You see the difference? When Paul and Barnabas are with a Jewish audience in Pisidian Antioch, Basically, their message is this. You're already part of the story. You know what to look for. And we're here to tell you that Jesus is it. He's the one you've been looking for. When they come to a Gentile audience in the city of Lystra, their point is basically to say, you haven't known what to look for. You've looked to everything else. But in the same way, we're here to tell you, Jesus is it. Same message, but tailored to their audience. Not, not to tickle people's ears and give them what they want, because you'll find throughout this passage, most often people are angry at the end of Paul's messages. Not going, oh, that was good, brother. Thank you so much for that. It wasn't to tickle people's ears, but it was to reach them where they were. It was to address how they already viewed the world. It, they addressed their, the people's hopes and fears, their ideals and their idols what they knew and what they didn't know. What this requires of missional messengers is what I like to call evangelistic listening. Most of the time when we think about evangelism, we start by thinking about what we're going to say. Either I've gotten my spiel down, I've gone through my book, I've got everything I need to know, turn me loose. Or on the flip side, I can't do this because I don't know what to say. But my point is that you don't start with what you say at all. As a matter of fact, the place where we need to start in evangelism is not with us and what we want to say, but with them, the people we're seeking to reach, and what they're already saying. We need to listen evangelistically. Francis Schaeffer, the great 20th century Christian philosopher and apologist, he said this one time. He said, If I only have an hour with someone... I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then, in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. Hear that? I don't think that Schaefer is basically advocating for some absolute, like, ratio. It's got to be 55 to 5 every time you have a call. But his point is to say, do you understand how important listening to people is? If we want people to care about what we know, They have to know that we care. You can't fake it. There's no better way to show people that you actually care about them than by actually listening. Not assuming that you know where they're coming from, because we all know what assuming does. But it means that you take the time to listen and understand where they're coming from, and then you take the time to ask, okay, well, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ address that? 
This requires that we depend upon God to give us genuine love for the people that we're trying to reach. You can't fake it. You can't fake being interested. Otherwise, you're a salesman. Salesmen are perfect at faking being interested in people so they can get what they want. If you're in a salesman, I don't mean absolutely. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But when, when gospel presentations get sales pitchy, I'm a, I believe the message and I get turned off by it. We must depend upon God to give us genuine love for people. Then we must work hard to get to know them and work hard to get to know God's word so we know how it lands in their lives. Do you know how to do this? Are you a learner of people? If it's not just those that are sent out that are missionaries, but it's all of us, it is essential that we learn how to do this. As a matter of fact, we're setting aside a week in May where this is going to be our focus. Can you put up that next slide? Back in January, we did a one-week emphasis on prayer. And coming up May 15th to 22nd, we're going to take that one of our key values of grow, live, and display and focus this week on growing in our understanding in three ways. Of God's story, of how to see our lives within that story, and then of how to learn other people's stories. To practice evangelistic listening. It's going to be very important. Mark your calendars. Save those dates. Most likely we'll be using the nights during those weeks to have some different sessions where we'll be learning and discussing and training and trying this out. But put that down in your calendar. It's going to be very important to be there. Because as we do this, in in my last couple of minutes, let's look at these last two traits. Number three, out of their learning people and speaking the gospel into their lives, they don't think it's just going to be easy, but missional messengers persevere knowing that there will be mixed results. As Paul and Barnabas move from town to town and they preach the gospel, many believe. Some Jewish people, but mostly Gentiles. Many reject. Some Gentiles, but mostly Jewish people who are jealous of the way that the Gentiles seem to be grabbing onto the gospel in a way that they never were interested in the Old Covenant. Sometimes, in light of that opposition, Barnabas and Saul are driven out of cities. And other times they flee. They hear about a plot to mistreat them and they leave in advance. Sometimes the best thing to do is to leave. How do you know when to stay and when to go? Or as in the words of the great theologian Kenny Rogers, how do you know when to hold them and when to fold them? You walk by the Spirit. You're not driven by your own personal ambition. You follow God. In Lystra, one of the things that's crazy, just as the people are about to to offer sacrifices to Barnabas and Paul, thinking that their gods come down in human form, some Jewish opponents of the gospel come in, and in a matter of minutes, it seems, they turn the whole opinion of the mob from wanting to worship them as gods to want to stone them as heretics. And that's what they do. They stone Paul, they drag him outside the city, and they leave him for dead. They think he's dead. He, he might have been, because it seems it's, it's rather strange. In chapter 14, verse 20, it says that when the disciples gathered around him, laying there bloody and beaten outside the city, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Though this was undoubtedly painful for Saul, he didn't find it strange. He didn't find it unusual. He understood that this is exactly what happens when the gospel of the kingdom of God lands in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. There is both belief and rejection. In fact, 
He told those who believed his message to expect the same thing to happen to them. In chapter 14, verse 22, he's telling these new believers, get ready. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Missional messengers persevere, knowing that there will be mixed results. And fourth, missional messengers know that the message produces churches, not just converts. Look what happens in chapter 14, verse 21. It says that when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. They go back through all the towns that they visited, and they strengthen those who believed. They strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And look at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They appointed elders, plural, in every church. As Paul and Barnabas make the journey home, they don't just leave behind these pockets of converts to fend for themselves. They plant churches. They appoint multiple leaders within those churches to care for the, for the saints. By the time, and put up that next map. By the time that Paul and Barnabas go to the next one, by the time that Paul and Barnabas make their way back to Antioch, see all those red dots? Those are churches. Not just pockets of believers, but churches planted with elders caring for the people so that they might witness there the mission is going forward. We have new dandelions popping up in different points on the map. The gospel message doesn't just produce believers, it produces churches. And by the time that they get back, look at this in verse 27. It says that when they arrived, they got back to Antioch and gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. They get back, the missionaries on furlough, if you will, and they've got their slideshows and their pictures and everything highlighting what they've done. But when they get there and they share with the the church, it's not look what we did. It's look what God did. Look what God did through us. See, this is so huge. As we end, you could look at all these things, the four traits of missional churches, the four traits of missional messengers, and go, I've got to do that. I've got to be that. We've got to make ourselves this kind of a church. But right here at the end, we're reminded that it's not about what we can do for Jesus, but it's about what Jesus has done for us. Through his death and resurrection, he has reconciled us to God. And he has now given us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. What Jesus has done for us, he will do through us into the lives of those around us so that the world might know that he is Lord that he loves them, and that he's calling them to submit to his gracious rule. This is God's mission, not ours. But he accomplishes it. He accomplishes it through us as we trust in him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father heaven, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, Lord. It was a lot to look at, but sometimes when we step back and see the big picture, we see these themes, we see these traits And Lord, I I praise you that in many ways I see these themes echoing in the life of our church. But not perfectly. I don't think Patricia Antioch was perfect either, but yet you used them. You moved your mission forward through them. 
We want the same thing for us, Lord Jesus. We don't want to be the frozen chosen. We don't want to just be the waiting room of those who bide our time waiting for you to come back. We want to be a missional people who proclaim your gospel in this nation, in this city, in other nations. Lord, would you make us that? This is your mission. This is what you've set out to do, and you've called us into it. Would you make us dependent upon you, and would you glorify yourself through us? All in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.